This is exactly right. The 2020s are getting stressful. What if we go back in time to the 1920s? All those flapper dresses, champagne towers, and good old-fashioned whodunits. Now is your chance with June's Journey, the mobile mystery game that puts your detective skills to the test. This game has everything. You'll play as June Parker investigating the murder of her sister. You'll travel the world searching for clues and explore lavish estates and beautifully designed scenes from the Roaring Twenties. Each is filled with hidden objects that may lead you to the killer. There are twists, turns, and even catchy tunes. And if you play well enough, you might make it to the detective club. There you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson. I'm a journalist who's spent the last 25 years writing about true crime. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired cold case investigator who's worked some of America's most complicated cases and solved them. Each week, I present Paul with one of history's most compelling true crimes. And I weigh in using modern forensic techniques to bring new insights to old mysteries. Together, using our individual expertise, we're examining historical true crime cases through a 21st century lens. Some are solved, and some are cold. Very cold. This is Buried Bones. Hey, Kate. Hey, Paul. How are you? I'm doing good. You know, I have been anxiously awaiting the information for the second part of this case. Yep, no small talk. Don't even try to interject with some fun Cora story. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have the time for it. We have to jump right into the second half of the Manhattan Well case. And let me summarize just at the very top what's happening here. We have six people living in a boarding house, including Elma Sands and Levi Weeks. And Elma believes they're engaged, and she tells other boarders that Levi has not admitted to being engaged to anyone, let alone Elma. And Elma indicates that she and Levi are going to elope on December 22nd, 1799. They're in Manhattan. And she and Levi, we believe, are heard leaving the boarding house around 8 o'clock that night, and they vanish. And Levi comes back a couple hours later. He's alone. He seems distraught. He feels like he's drowning in debt. And he's saying some inconsistencies with his fiance, who is now missing. And some of the inconsistencies are that she is even his fiance to begin with. And the landlady is very suspicious of Levi. Some boys a couple of days later found a muff that was borrowed from a neighbor by Elma in a well. And this is not very far from the boarding house. 
A few days after that, her body is discovered, Elma's body is discovered inside the well. There are many, many injuries. In the last episode, you and I talked about what could be responsible for those injuries, whether they were from a violent altercation with an offender or whether they were just sort of byproducts of floating in a well for 11 days, banging up against very rough walls. Now we've had a funeral service of sorts and lots of people coming by the boarding house and viewing this poor woman's body. Now Levi Weeks is under arrest. And this begins a courtroom proceeding like no other of this time period because it involves two of the biggest players in the 18th century, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, both defend Levi Weeks. Oh, okay. Those are names I recognize. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me what you know about Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Do you know very much? Oh, God, you're going to put me on the spot about my my history knowledge? That's right. Wasn't Alexander Hamilton one of the signatories to the uh, Declaration of Independence? He was. Very good. Okay. And what about Aaron Burr? Any ideas? Aaron Burr. Didn't he get into a duel with somebody? That would be Alexander Hamilton. (laughs) That's it. Okay. I was about to put that out there, but I thought, no, that's too obvious. You did. Yeah. Just to (laughs) simplify it, these two guys a few years later, five years later, would end up in a duel and Aaron Burr will end up killing Alexander Hamilton. They were both attorneys. They really disliked each other on many different levels inexplicably, they are working on this case. And it's because of Ezra Weeks, who is the very well-known architect who is the brother of Levi Weeks, who is much less well-known until he becomes accused of a very high-profile murder. Levi is under arrest and the defense and the prosecutors start putting together their cases. I'll remind you that the public is in an uproar over this. And when he walks into the courtroom, Levi Weeks is met with screams of crucify him. And this is a historic trial. It takes place in the first couple of months of 1800, the year 1800. And it stretched two days, which is unheard of, as we talked about before. Usually these were pretty quick and dirty. You're guilty or you have some money. Okay, you're innocent. And that was it. So this was pretty remarkable. The trial starts on March 31st, 1800. So listen to this. There are 75 witnesses. This is why it took two days, I'm sure. 75 witnesses, 51 of them come from the defense. Okay, so two-day trial, 75 witnesses. Yep. These witnesses are not on the stand very long. Mm -mm. And they could have met for, you know, 20 hours a day. We don't know. But this was a fast and a very slow trial, I think, at the same time. (laughs) Okay, the prosecutor in this case was a guy named Cadwallader David Colden. And he would become mayor of New York eventually. And, of course, he went to the House of Representatives like many people, like what I would have expected. So he was making the political circuit. And let me just lay out both sides of the cases because this is where we have to start determining what happened with the injuries that they found on Elma. There were witnesses who took the stand for the prosecutor that said they heard the voice of a female crying murder and entreating for mercy from the direction of the well between eight o'clock and nine o'clock that night. And we know from Catherine that the clock struck 8 p.m. and Elma and we presume Levi went out the door. 
So this fits into this time frame, and you've got around this time frame near the well, the voice of a woman calling out murder. Now, how do they know this if this is a very remote area? I I know from that photo or that drawing we saw that there were some houses around, but I guess, can you hear that for half a mile away if somebody's screaming bloody murder, literally? Well, voices can most certainly carry, but I'm also thinking about the construction of these houses back then. Yeah. You know, it's going to be different. Maybe thicker walls, but the windows would be thinner. Maybe sound could be passed from the outside to the inside easier than what we see with some of the modern construction. You know, so I am not really surprised by that. Mm -hmm. So what else witnesses are saying? They say that they saw Elma in the company of two men just a few hundred yards from her house that night. Two men. Let me tell you this, because this is cultural context. This is why we learn a little bit about history. Witnesses claim to have seen a woman. They couldn't identify whether it was Elma or not. A woman with two men, again, two men, in a single horse sleigh. Okay. Remember what James Lent said? He saw tracks. We don't know if that was meaningful or not. This is the part that I do know is meaningful. The single horse sleigh was drawn by a horse that was not wearing bells. Why do you think that would be a big deal in 1799? I'm making a guess here, but I would imagine that... You know, obviously the bells are an audible signal, probably for safety purposes as they're being drawn along a pathway, a walking path, et cetera, with pedestrians or other horse-drawn carriages. The lack of bells sounds like it would have been unusual. So now whoever has this horse-drawn sleigh has gone into stealth mode. (laughs) You know, it's sort of like turning your headlights off today. I literally say that. So it's like turning your headlights off. That's exactly right. You would have had a collision at night with no bells. And I thought that was so interesting. That's one of the reasons why I love history. I never thought about that. Like when I take my kids to Colorado and we're in horse-drawn sleighs and you hear the bells and I was like, oh, this is so pretty. It wasn't pretty. It was practical is what it was supposed to be. Well, it's just like when I go mountain biking, I have a bell on my bike and that's, you know, known as a bear bell, mm-hmm. you know, with the hope that, it, you know, if you're a hiker or a mountain biker, bears go, now. we're going to move away from this path. But it really is for the pedestrians that I can't see around the corner. They can hear me coming. And I would imagine the same thing is going on with these horse bells. I wonder how they don't cancel each other out, though. I mean, all these bells, there's no street lights, there's no signals or anything. I just, I wonder. Yeah, you get too many bells going on and you have no idea where they're coming from. (laughs) Well... Whoever was driving this particular one-horse sleigh removed the bells. You're right, stealth mode. Now witnesses are also claiming they've seen a dark-colored horse, which, I mean, throw a rock in New York. I'm sure they're all over the place. Dark-colored horse galloping on Broadway at full speed, no bells, carrying three people in a sleigh between 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock. Now, that seems suspicious and sort of fits in with our timeline. What do you think about those details? Well, this is not going how I expected. This is definitely a little bit of a twist. I was expecting Mm -hmm. witnesses to see a man and a woman by the well and the women being put in the well, if not, you know, killed ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Now you have witnesses saying that a horse-drawn carriage without bells with two men and assuming a woman, Elma, It sounds like Levi 
potentially arranged to have a co-conspirator arrange to meet up for some reason, and obviously not a good reason as far as Elma's concerned. Yeah. Where my mind is going right now is the owner of this horse-drawn carriage. Is this just a driver of this carriage or is this the actual owner? And what are the financial means back in the day for somebody to actually own something like this? Does this give me information as to who the second person possibly is? There is an idea of who the second person is But this is unreliable. So now we're getting into what witnesses actually add to a murder trial. There's a woman named Susanna Broad. She is the neighbor of Ezra Weeks, Levi's brother. She said under oath that around 8 o'clock that night, the gate opened and a carriage or sleigh came out of the yard, made a rumbling noise, had no bells, and that it was gone long before it returned again. Now, here's the problem with Susanna Broad. She knows the time of night because she noticed it on the clock. She does not know the specific day that this sleigh with no bells left Ezra Weeks's property. So is this just crap? I mean, is this not good testimony? This is implicating Ezra Weeks potentially in something when he might not have had anything to do with anything with his brother. No, you know, I wouldn't call it just crap, but if, you know, in part because this carriage doesn't have any bells on it. Mm-hmm. That is a detail that sounds like it's it's unique enough that you you make note of it. Mm-hmm. But you have to, as an investigator, you have to drill down on all that information. You know, see if you can tighten that statement up by talking to other witnesses, mm-hmm. by going to Ezra's house, talking to him, talking to I, I don't know if he had servants or he had uh, other type of help within the uh, the house itself. Mm -hmm. verify that he actually has this type of horse and Mm -hmm. carriage that matches the description. There's there's a lot of legwork that should be done versus just relying upon that particular witness statement. It does impugn his character a little bit to even bring this up without knowing 100% what the day was. It's pretty, it seems dangerous to me. I get the impression from this trial that the prosecutor is really throwing a lot of wet spaghetti at the refrigerator and seeing what sticks because this is a circumstantial case, don't you think? Just going into this, does this sound circumstantial to you? There's no real hard evidence against Levi Weeks. No, you know, well, at this point in time, you know, everything that you're telling me would be information that is being compiled early on in investigation. And this is where you start building a case. But none of this is rising to the level of what I would consider probable cause, where now you feel that you can put Levi under arrest for Elma's homicide and charge him with with murder. There needs to be so much more meat on this bone before you move forward to trial. Right. And I'm I'm hearing, you know, these types of statements being presented in in court at a trial that lasted 2 days with 75 witnesses. Yeah, it, it does sound like the prosecutor is just like, boom, I'm just throwing all of this out here and hopefully it sticks enough to where I can get a conviction. But hopefully there's some witnesses that are now going to be able to show that they did the legwork in order to be able to flesh this case out and make it more compelling against Levi. Levi's a suspect for sure. Mm-hmm. But is he somebody that I would say there's enough against him with what you've told me that he should be a defendant? Not yet. 
Well, the prosecutor is trying to build also a case that Levi is not a trustful person. They put a witness on named William Anderson, who is Levi's apprentice as a builder, and he shares a room with him at the boarding house. And he testifies that Levi once told him that he was with Elma not for courtship or for dishonor, you know, sleeping with her, but for conversation. So he is presenting this to William Anderson as a friendship only, but William says on multiple occasions, he saw Levi leave their room for the entire night and he presumed it was to go down to Elma's room and sleep with her. Okay. This goes into my heart balm thing. This goes into, he has made a promise to her probably that they were going to get married and they were having sex. And if he tries to back out, boy, she would have just had a fit. There's no way around that for sure. No, absolutely. And and then this is where I think I, I mentioned it during the first part of this series is where's the deep pockets in this? Well, it's it's Ezra, yeah. you know? So it, does she recognize that? And I don't know what the legal process would be back then in terms of could she also sue Ezra, you know, and possibly gain access to those deep pockets to benefit her even more than just going after Levi. And now right. this is where the two brothers conspire, which, you know, right now, you know, at least with the information, it's like, okay, there's there's possibly something along those lines. It's just that, do we have a case built against both Levi and Ezra at this point? Right now, we don't. There, it's just, there's some leads there that need follow-up. Well, I have a vague statement for you from James Lent, who is the man who helped kind of excavate her body from this well. He's the one who gave us all the detail about the petticoat and the scratches and on and on. He's a layperson. He says that Levi seemed to know that Elma's body was found in a well before it became public knowledge. This is a vague statement. He couldn't give more details than that. That sounds like BS to me. I mean, Levi could have found out from word of mouth. I mean, there's so many other ways that he could have found out. But this is the kind of person that the district attorney's putting on the stand right now to impugn Levi's character, which I'm not saying doesn't need to be impugned. I'm just saying from a legal standpoint, this all is very squishy to me. Yeah, you know, and I imagine the defense is objecting to some of these witness statements, whether it be uh, hearsay, whether it be speculative. So it'd be interesting to see this actually unfold. I think you opened up this case by saying this was the first case in which there were trial transcripts done. Right. This is the very first trial documented by court clerks. So they are summarizing the proceedings. It's not like stenography. Okay. It would have been a really big deal because it would have been cemented in public record all the way through now where I could access it if I wanted to. So it was a big deal to have this trial and the summary and the summary of what the witnesses said in print, yeah. you know, an official document. It had never been done before. Sure. And just, you know, sort of the trial strategy and, and the, the decisions being made by the judge. Is the defense objecting to some of the stuff that the prosecution is doing? Is that laying a legal foundation for possibly an appeal down the road? You know, so that would be something that would be interesting, especially, you know, some, I know some of our listeners are, you know, attorneys, both prosecutors as well as on the defense side, you know, getting mm -hmm. their expert thoughts, you know, if they were to review, you know, how this trial proceeded, do they feel that the prosecutor is building a sufficient case? Now, I'm going to reveal something. I normally don't like to show my cards too early, but I'm going to reveal something because then we're going to talk about medical evidence. And I need you to think in these terms. 
The defense is going to say that Elma's injuries were not consistent with murder. They were consistent with the decomposition in the water, so, you know, of her body. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a homicide. And they're going to say that she might have died by suicide. Just think about that. Don't comment on that yet, because now we've got two quote-unquote experts. The state is putting on two medical experts. These are not men who examined her in a controlled setting. These are men who looked at her and probably picked around at her during that viewing outside of Catherine's boarding house. So this was not an autopsy. This was an observation by two medical experts, one of whom is a dentist, which the defense said, bullshit, we don't want... Yeah. <laughs> you're not going to put a dentist on the stand. But I want you to hear what the dentist... I know you're going to say, this is not a blah, blah, not right. a blah, blah. But let me tell you what the dentist said, because maybe it, it gives you a little bit more information on, on what the condition of her body was. He said, I had but a superficial view of her body. However... As it lay in the coffin, exposed to the view of thousands, I examined such parts as were come atable. I love that phrase, come atable, which is like pretty much whatever I could access just by peering down at her, such as her head and her neck and her breasts. I discovered several bruises and scratches, particularly a bruise upon the forehead and the chin and upon the left breast or near it. I think that the mark upon the neck had the appearance of a compression but not by a rope or a handkerchief. It was suggested by a number of people that the neck was broken, and I examined it and discovered it was not, so you're right about that, Paul. Those spots on the neck were reddish-black spots. There were several small spots which might have passed unnoticed by a common observer. The appearance upon the breast was about as large as the circumference of a dollar, coin dollar, and it was a small bruise, but it was more difficult to examine than the other. There were a number of women present, and the prosecutor said, was the compression of which you spoke of around her neck such as it might have been made by a hand? And he said, yes, it was, and now that is still my impression. So he's saying she was strangled. Can you tell that 11 days in a well? Do you think you would be able to tell that? Wouldn't the skin be slothing by then? Well, not necessarily. Again, you know, this is very cold water. So, you know, she's going to be a little bit better preserved than if it were in a warmer environment. You know, one of the interesting phenomena that occurs with a body... Uh, whether a living body or even a, a deceased body, is that sometimes this bruising can become more prominent as time goes on. Okay. And with a with a living person, the bruising, of course, is undergoing a healing process and changes colors, but it can, after an injury occurs, there may be like a, a slight redness in the area, maybe even mm-hmm. some a slight swelling, but then the bruise forms. And it's that, you know, traditional, very dark bruise that anybody can associate with. Mm-hmm. And then as this living person heals in that area, that bruise changes colors. And so a very well-trained pathologist is able to kind of take a look at the color of the bruising and, and give an estimate in terms of this, is this a fresh bruise or this is a bruise that is so many days old? With a deceased individual, you don't have the healing process, but sometimes you get some of these these injuries becoming more pronounced as time goes on. So if there was manual strangulation in this case, then maybe some of the marks around her neck became more pronounced by the time that her body was recovered. I'm having a major, major issue putting any reliance upon this dentist Mm -hmm. who 
you know, right now, I, I don't know what his medical training is, what his uh, experience and expertise is in terms of dealing with deceased individuals and looking at injuries off of deceased bodies. As far as I'm concerned, he's a lay person. Right. And lay people, when they first see deceased bodies, they often misinterpret what they are looking at. The location of, of this mark on, on her neck, of course, is interesting, but no way, shape, or form would I put any relevance to it unless there is an actual dissection of that neck showing that, yes, you have hemorrhaging to the, what we call the strap muscles. You have the hyoid bone broken. There's uh, cartilage within the neck that's been crushed due to the, the compression. Mm -hmm. There's petechiae. There's all these other diagnostic features that a pathologist uses it's so easy to see somebody who maybe has a mark on their neck and then mm -hmm. misinterpret that as being, oh, that's her cause of death. It was due to strangulation. She died somehow. Right. But was it strangulation? Was it drowning? Yeah, and I hate to tell you one more vague thing, but I will say that that dentist's testimony was, and his belief that she was strangled was corroborated by a man who, now that I'm reading this little detail, I realize I know exactly who he is. His name is Dr. David Hozak, and he was one of the most well-known physicians in America. He was very well-respected, and actually, ironically, he would treat Alexander Hamilton after Aaron Burr killed him. Oh. He would try to save his life. So David Hozak, he would know exactly what was happening with all of this. Now, I mean, is he a forensic pathologist? No. Is he a resident at Columbia University and one of the most well-known physicians in the country? Yes. He says, he agrees with Skinner, that Elma's wounds seem to be caused by strangulation of the human hands. But there's no details about why he says that. And this is where when you start dealing with a, again, a deceased body that's undergone decomposition in this uh, kind of a, a cool environment, there's a reason why today we have forensic pathologists. They gain expertise in terms of looking at so many deceased bodies and all the wounds and all the training that they've got, even though this physician is a very noted medical physician, doesn't mean he has the expertise to draw a really good conclusion that I would rely upon. There are times where, you know, we will have victims end up in emergency rooms and the treating physician will form certain opinions as to what happened. And it can be completely wrong once a pathologist, trained forensic pathologist, is now taking a look at the victim who has subsequently died. You know, so just because somebody has medical training doesn't mean that they have sufficient expertise to draw this conclusion, especially at a viewing where they are just kind of poking on this body while she's laying there. Yeah, so they may be right. I'm not saying that they're not right. It's just, do I put a lot of veracity on their opinions? I do not. Well, even then, if you've got Dr. Hozak in a good environment doing an autopsy, that's one thing. But yet again, he's on the street with thousands of other people and he's looking down and he's able to probably pull open her shirt and look at different things. But it's the same situation as with the dentist. There's just, it's not a, a real situation where he can do an actual examination. And that's, again, a problem. Very true. And then, of course, if you're a bystander watching this man starting to open up this woman's blouse or whatever she had on while she's laying in state, you've got to be thinking, what's a strange guy doing?
I'm getting ready to launch into a book that's set in the early 1800s. And it was the women who were absolutely in charge of dressing another woman for her funeral. It would not have been men. And in the case that I'm working on for a new book, it was the women who noticed that this could have been a murder. Okay. It wasn't the men because there was such a sense of impropriety for a man to see a woman, whether she was dead or alive, whether it's in the middle of a murder investigation with no clothes on, it was just difficult. Again, like asking uncomfortable, difficult questions, Mm -hmm. like, are you sleeping with this woman? There aren't a lot of police officers in the 1700s who might not have asked that. So it's very touchy. It's not as an aggressive investigation in the 1700s, but when you've got someone who's related to Ezra Weeks with that kind of a name, and then you add in this incredible defense team with Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, I don't think the prosecutors really had a chance because they're just about ready to dismantle his case. So the prosecution rests, the defense stands up and says, okay, we think she died by suicide. This was not anything that was murder. This is a case where they're trying to railroad a very respected citizen whose brother is, you know, kind of an icon at this point in design in New York City. And we think that this is more of a witch hunt than anything else. They do this by a couple of different ways. One, which is not surprising at all, which is victim blaming and slut shaming and everything you want to call it. The defense, including these two men, who are so well-known in history, try to tie Elma to several different men with unfounded rumors that she was having sex with multiple people at the same time. And nobody wanted to marry her. And this was sending her into despair. There's a man named Timothy Crane who was a boarder for a little bit where Elma was a boarder and Levi was. And he says that Elma was melancholy for the week that he was there, which was not very long ago, and that she once said she wished that she had a whole vial full of laudanum and that she would take it. So more talk of a woman in despair, nobody wants her. They're really trying to frame Elma as someone who wanted to take her own life. Yeah, you know, and and this would be an expected type of defense in this case. They have a circumstantial case, Mm -hmm. and now they are showing that there is a potentially a reasonable explanation for why she ended up dead because of her victimology, her past history, her past behavior. I agree. And of course, we know this happens all the time now. And there is the expectation that everybody needs a defense. I mean, that is one of the hallmarks of our country is that, you know, people who are accused of any crime need to be defended, ably defended. But that is a disgusting way to defend someone. And it continued. So there is Elma for a day where the defense is presenting all of their evidence you know, on display, this life of a woman who certainly garnered much more attention dead than she did alive. So they present witnesses, the defense puts on witnesses who say they saw Levi all over the place that night. And when you triangulate all of these witnesses and you triangulate the times and you find where there is a space for him to draw her on the sled over to the well, kill her, dump her in the well, he has an open window of about 15 minutes. That's the only time these witnesses say that nobody saw him was 15 minutes. How much do we believe witnesses and their accuracy without cell phones and watches in 1799? 
when it's very, very dark outside. Some of these witnesses may be in a position to recognize Levi, recognize Elma, are close enough, you know, and be able to say, yes, I saw him or them together at this location at this time, and they they could be reliable. I imagine some of these witnesses probably are less reliable just because they're seeing what they think or who they think is Levi or Levi and Elma. But, you know, Levi, by my account, even though Levi and Elma are not seen leaving the boarding house together, I think it's a fairly safe assumption that they did. So are there witnesses that are putting them together at various locations after they left the boarding house? And then are there witnesses saying, you know, at this time, I'm only seeing Levi? By himself, you know, were the original investigators able to really drill down on a good timeline to where now we narrow the window of when Elma was alive and when Elma is no longer seen and and presumed either dead or she's off on her own and ultimately ends up dead by her own hands. Right. And what I think is interesting is that people have said all over, well, Levi was here, Levi was there. They could definitively identify Levi. But to your point, the only thing that we hear of Elma as soon as she leaves Catherine's boarding house is potentially she is the mystery woman in this single horse sled with no bells racing down Broadway between 8 p.m. and 9 p.m. She vanishes She is not identified after she leaves that boarding house. It is just Levi. And that is a little bit odd to me. You have all these witnesses that are seeing Levi, but they're not seeing Levi with Elma. Is that more of the defense or prosecution's point of view here? Well, for me, it it, it comes down to, well, what is Levi's statement about what happened that night? Did he give one? Does it make sense? And is it being corroborated by what these witnesses are saying? Or is he making a statement about, I was with Elma, and we went here, and we went here, and we went here, and then these witnesses are saying, no, Levi was by himself. You know, it's, it's really utilizing these witness statements to either corroborate or refute what Levi said that night, if he made a statement. Maybe he, you know, he lawyered up and uh, you know, didn't, didn't make any statements during the investigation. I don't believe he made a statement. And what Burr and Hamilton and Livingston, who was another attorney, he had this, you know, really great team of three. What these three men said was, contend happened was, Levi said goodbye to her and they left and she went one way and he went the other and nothing happened. They left. There was no marriage ceremony, nothing. And she disappeared and he doesn't know what happened to her. But this doesn't add up with what Elma was saying was going to happen that night. Correct. To individuals that have no ax to grind in this case outside of, hey, our friend Elma said she was going to elope with Levi. And now you go, okay, so Levi's leaving with Elma to go get married. Right. And then he's just being seen about town all by himself. Yeah. This is just not adding up. It's odd because what I thought, I was trying to think about this in my head. Catherine overhears what she presumes is Levi and Elma talking in the stairwell before the door opens and the two people exit. we presume, out of the boarding house. What I wondered is if they had a discussion that turned into sort of a quiet fight. If they were middle class, this would not have been some knockdown, drag out fight in front of the whole boarding house, most likely. Maybe they just decided to separate 
for the night, or maybe she just said, I'm going to go somewhere else. Maybe it was some sort of a disagreement. And then she really did what I think the defense was saying happened. What they're insinuating is that she took the laudanum and then got into the well and died or fell into the well one way or the other and died. And there's no toxicology yeah. in 1799. So there's no testing. And I don't know, I didn't ask you to look, but I don't know if there's some sort of like telltale sign of if you've had laudanum poisoning. In all likelihood, probably not, especially after 11 days. Decomposition. And I go back to the witness who says he saw the horse-drawn carriage with a single track, you know, that impression in snow outside the well. I so want to know when he made that statement relative to when there was uh, anything in the press about the case. And then when are they interviewed about this horse-drawn carriage with no bells going down Broadway with two men and a woman, and then the horse-drawn carriage with no bells coming out of Ezra Weeks' residence? Mm -hmm. Establishing when these witness statements are being made, I think could be very informative in terms of I could put more weight on that kind of detail than multiple witnesses saying, I saw Levi that night. Right. And now you have an assumption that, well, him and, and Elma have just separated and, and Elma has taken her life in her own hands. So that's that's part of what I would really want to do is, is map out this suspicious horse-drawn carriage as to when the track's being seen by the well versus when the other witnesses are seeing versus when it was made public. Did this witness who saw the horse-drawn carriage tracks by the well, was that public information early on in the case prior to these people who are now saying, oh, I saw the same horse-drawn carriage, right. you know, with two men and a woman. You know, if they're making that kind of statement before being able to read it in, pub in the public domain, that becomes significant to me because it's such a unique detail mm -hmm. that I put weight on that. Well, the man says that he noticed the single track horse-drawn carriage and the men's shoe prints by the well. He noticed it a couple of days after she went missing, after the muff was discovered, but before her body was discovered. To be honest, Paul, I don't know if this came from an interview after all of this came out, but... I would hope that the police would have been thorough from the beginning because this involved a high-profile family, but I don't know. You're right. I mean, this could have been some sort of conspiracy here of all of these people trying to railroad this guy. I don't, I don't know. I want to come back to the medical evidence, though. Which is more probable based on what you know? A murder or a suicide based on the scratches and everything else that you've heard? We don't know. No, I, I think based on what is being relayed from the dentist, from the physician, from this uh, civilian witness as to what the condition of Elma's body was in and the, the, the types of injuries. I really can't determine how she died based on that. Yeah. If I put any, any weight on the marks around her neck, that would suggest strangulation. When I start thinking about, well, is this homicide versus suicide? You know, that's where I go back to what we know about what was supposed to happen that night. And the suspicious contradiction between what Levi is saying versus what Elma 
was saying was going to be happening, right? Mm -hmm. And then Levi's behavior, when he comes back, he leaves with Elma and he comes back alone and he's distraught. And he's making a statement that he's pretty convinced she's dead. Yeah. Well, that comes a couple days later when he says, I think she's into eternity. Immediately when he comes back that night, that's supposed to be his wedding night, he says that I would rather die with credit than live underneath credit. So he is saying, I'm kind of not worthy unless she can help me out. I don't know how this is going to work. So it's all very confusing. And I think what it really comes down to is the thing I hate the most is it feels like this is a murder. I don't see her walking out to a remote well. And this does not seem likely when it's, it sounds to me like you're saying it's very easy to overdose on laudanum and, and that's it. Why would you then jump into a well? Maybe she took it and stumbled into it, but it's kind of far removed. I just don't like that sequence of events. You know, she leaves to go get married and now she's taking the laudanum and doing a header down into the well. Yeah. Everything about Levi's behavior just suggests that, in my mind, he likely is involved in her homicide. Uh, There may have been a financial motive. He comes back distraught and is, is bringing up financial aspects. Yeah. And who's his financial resource? It's his brother. Yeah. You know, and, and I lean towards that in terms of this is a homicide and that, that Levi is is likely culpable and Ezra may have, uh, you know, assisted in some way. Uh, but right now, with the information that you're presenting as it was presented in trial, I just don't think that they have a, a case against Levi. No. You know, they have suspicion for sure. Right. And of course, it defense is able to muddy the water because Elma has made statements to other witnesses about wanting to take her own life. You know, even though they do the victim blaming in terms of her possibly being with other men and and stuff, you know, just to try to disparage Elma, they are relying upon what she has told other people. And that is just going to give the jurors reasonable doubt. Yep. I agree. Like my dad said, it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what you can prove. The state couldn't prove this. So the judge essentially told the jury that. (laughs) He essentially said, I mean, this just seems like ripe for appeal, I guess. But he essentially says, you really should acquit Levi Weeks. There's not enough evidence. So of course they go back. And after five minutes of deliberating, they come back with a not guilty verdict. Wow. And Catherine, who is her closest friend, Elma's closest friend, and really the main advocate at this whole trial, she jumps up and yells at Alexander Hamilton, founding father of our country, and Aaron Burr and the other defense attorney and yells, if thee dies a natural death, I shall think there is no justice in heaven that's an FU in, in 18th century <laughs> speak. She was mad. And, and this, is, this feels like they wanted to, a vindication for this woman's life and they feel like they didn't get it. And Levi Weeks walks out a free man. And it doesn't escape my attention that Ezra is such a notable citizen. Is it possible you have a corrupt police force? Is it possible that the judge was, you know, in cahoots with Ezra? or Ezra had sway over this judge. There is a political component to having somebody so notable and so wealthy that it's possible that that swayed the investigation. Funny you should bring that up. Oh. Because a troubling detail around this case is that Ezra Weeks tried to bribe 
one of the three court clerks to take information out of the permanent record, just trying to make his family look better. And what critics then said was that it is clear that we can't believe any of the defense's witnesses, the people who said she was suicidal, the people who gave him an alibi, because if Ezra Weeks is willing to bribe a court clerk, who else did he bribe who took the stand? And I think that's a very credible argument. Sure. No, absolutely. Now you're buying witnesses and you're getting people who are telling absolute lies on the stand and behind the scenes, they are being compensated in some manner, whether it's actual money compensation or whether they've been threatened that if they don't do this, their life is going to be changed in some manner because you have somebody who has the assets and the connections in order to do that. Yep. So Levi Weeks is a free man. Nobody is convicted ever of Alma's murder if she was murdered. We're not sure, but I would lean towards murder, and it sounds like you would too. This does not seem like a suicide or an accidental death to me at all. Yeah, no, I, I definitely lean towards this is, a, this is a homicide case. They just took it to trial way too early. And they were outmatched. Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr were two of the most powerful, intelligent, aggressive attorneys in the new America. So the prosecutor, I think, was outmatched. So Levi walks out, leaves New York because he becomes a pariah. The press just dismantles his character on the pages of the newspapers and the public is incensed. And of course, they think that Ezra Weeks comes in and saves his brother, the murderer, even though this is a pretty weak case. So Levi bounces from place to place because he's run out of town. He finally settles in Mississippi where he marries and he starts a family. And he ends up running a successful architectural firm like his brother. Then we know what happens with Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr five years after this verdict. They get into an argument. There's a lot of stuff happening and there's a duel and Aaron Burr kills Alexander Hamilton and then David Hozak tries to save Hamilton's life and it doesn't work. And the trajectory of politics in some ways changes in the United States after that because Alexander Hamilton, I have no doubt, would have been a president of the United States. So this case highlights privilege. You know, you think this guy is in a boarding house dating just a normal middle-class woman and you have an incredibly wealthy brother coming in and saving him. And this happens time and time again. If you have enough money and a great defense team, you can get out of a lot of things. I know this was a weak case, but still they bury the prosecutor. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, for whatever reason, O.J. Simpson's name keeps popping (laughs) into my head at this point. I have a whole list of names that pop into my head because of this. So Elma's murder is officially an unsolved case. There's obviously a lot of intrigue around this case still. And the Manhattan Well is visible at this clothing store in Soho in New York. And obviously it's haunted by Elma's spirit. And now we've whipped right back around to ghostly tales and just the general spookiness of so many spots for me in America and around the world. The lives that are lived Below the ground that you walk are incredible. We just have no idea what's out there. I will say this is, uh, you know, I talked about not ever experiencing anything that I would consider in the paranormal, but I've done a lot of old cases 
where I go out to the crime scenes. And I do feel a weird energy when I'm there. Yeah. There is something where I'm like, okay, you know, and, and it may just be because I'm, you know, my senses are so in tuned to soaking in the environment and looking at it, even though it's sometimes many decades later, looking at it today versus what was present back then and looking at the scene photos and the, the photos of the victim. But I always kind of really connect to these locations mm-hmm. for some reason. And so I can see where people would, you know, if they understood that somebody had died in a particular location, it would be, oh, this is weird, you know, and whether or not they're actually seeing an apparition or hearing a voice or other disturbances occurring. You know, I've never experienced that at any of these crime scenes, but most certainly I understand just that weird feeling being someplace where a violent crime has occurred, somebody has died. It's a piece of history, and it's why I like history so much. Somebody asked me the other day during an interview, what other things do you like in history besides murder? And I love old cookbooks. I flip through very old, (laughs) old Pennsylvania Dutch cookbooks, and my mom has, you know, cookbooks from the 1910s and 1800s, and I love, love, love old cookbooks, and it just takes you back in time. So if we're ever in New York together, we should go visit the Manhattan Well just because there's no replacing being somewhere to just see and feel what that must have been like for somebody. And no matter what happened in that well, Elma Sands ended up in the well. Mm -hmm. And to be alone in freezing water, whether she had died first, what a terrible ending for a woman who I assume had every potential in life there was at age 22. And it's sad to think about, but an important story to tell, I think. Yeah, and I would love to go see that well when we end up in New York together. I'm booking a flight. All right. (laughs) I'm on it. (laughs) Just just let me know when and where. (laughs) Okay, so I will see you next week for another fantastic Buried Bones case. Awesome. Thanks, Kate. Thanks. This has been an Exactly Right production. For our sources and show notes, go to exactlyrightmedia.com slash sources. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Research by Marin McClashen and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Our mixing engineer is Ryo Baum. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. Our artwork is by Vanessa Lilac. Executive produced by Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hardstark, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow Buried Bones on Instagram and Facebook at Buried Bones Pod. Kate's most recent book, All That Is Wicked, A Gilded Age Story of Murder and the Race to Decode the Criminal Mind, is available now. And Paul's best-selling memoir, Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases, is also available now. Follow Barry Bones and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase Buried Bones merch.